Before we start, let's, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our dear Father in heaven, we boldly approach your throne this, evening, this afternoon hour to open ourselves up to what your spirit would say. That we would deal with a bold topic such as Christian liberties. And as we do, we pray that each spirit that would be here today, each soul that would be listening, would be open to not what Brother Glenn or I have to say, but what your word teaches. But more importantly, not that we would just listen and be attentive, but more importantly, help us by the power of your spirit to put what we learn into practice in our fellowship. For this is truly one area that we struggle with, and we need your help. So we pray, rest your spirit upon each of us and teach us, and we will listen and obey. Amen. What happened on this day? Independence. Declaration of Independence was signed, right? What does that signify? What does this Declaration of Independence signify? Freedom, liberty, birth of a nation, separation from the rule of someone else. Excellent. If I'm too loud, I'm going to lower this maybe. Okay. Um, In this document, it talks about some unalienable rights that we have, that we've been endowed with by our creator. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What what do these rights mean? What does it mean to have the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to pursue happiness? They mean different things to different people. If we would poll everybody in here, we would get a whole bunch of different answers of what the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness means. And if we would step outside the confines of this university and go to the Walmart and begin to pose this question to the people in it going in and out of Walmart, they would give us a whole slew of other interpretations of what the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is. When the founding fathers wrote this, did they mean it to be personal rights to life, liberty, and happiness? Or was this meant as a collective right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is it all about me and my life and my liberties and my happiness? Or is it about our life and our liberties and our pursuits of happiness? Do your own thing, challenge authority, follow the desires of your heart. These are the mantras of what we would call today the freedom movement, the liberty movement. Self-centeredness is almost the motivating factor um, with those that that proclaim that type of of interpretation. But I believe if we would go back and study um, the writings of the founding fathers when they penned this, we will see that this document 
stemmed from and was based upon biblical principles and was not based upon personal principles or principles of self-indulgence, for lack of a better term. Um, and that's why we changed the title of this forum instead to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Christ. Because when we pursue Christ, and that becomes the focal point of our pursuit, we will truly know and have life more abundantly and have true liberty. We were given this topic about six or eight weeks ago. I remember opening that email from Sister Leanne, and I read the topic, and I sunk. I sunk because I read that word liberty, and I thought of something really negative. Because when I would use that word, ah, they're a liberal. Ah, look at that liberty they're taking. If I imagine that word, it was just dripping with sarcasm. Because it always had that negative connotation that, ah, it's that liberty again. Ah. I think we misuse this word. And over the last eight weeks, I can truly say on behalf of Brother Mark and myself, this word has blossomed into something beautiful. I don't look at this word anymore with that, ah. Uh. I'm trying to view how people take liberty in their lives and not prejudge and presuppose. I think this negative connotation comes from that we think when somebody is taking a Christian liberty, they're looking at the line, kind of kick it back. A little bit while later, as we're watching them, we think they're going to take another liberty, and we kind of imagine them brushing out that line in the sand, taking another step, Another line, a little bit further, and a little bit further. Some people think that I have this liberty, so this is my ticket to do what I want. We have this liberty in Christ, so that means where I want to go, what I want to do, what I want to say, I can do and go and say because I got a key to do it. It's my liberty. Some people think of Christian liberties and say, you know what? I don't even want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it because it's uncomfortable. I don't know how to use my liberty in Christ. I don't know what that is. 
So I'm just going to step back. Except when you read Galatians 5.13, the first portion is telling us we've all been called unto liberty. The first night Brother Mark and I talked about this, this shook me. Because everything that I thought about liberty, all the negative connotations, were smashed into pieces. Because I'm called, Brother Mark's called, and you're called unto liberty. A liberal. Everybody's thinking it. We're all thinking, who's a liberal? People are smirking. I like that. Why? Because this is a human emotion. We think of a liberal, and we get flashes of pictures through our mind. We think of an action. We think of a person. We remember something we did. A liberal. Let's talk about a liberal from the Bible. Matthew 12. You see, the Sabbath day was really holy. And there were a lot of laws that the Jews had come up with that said, you can do that, you can't do that, and especially on the Sabbath. Christ and his disciples were walking through a cornfield and they were hungry. They broke the law because they wanted to eat a liberal. John 2. After all of the wine had been drunk, one of Christ's first miracles we need more wine. Barrels of new wine. Think of the context. Not only just the miracle, think of the context. The ruler of that feast had said, why did we save this good wine till the end? We drank all the wine. So that tells us what? This was not the beginning of the feast. This was not the first cup of wine that somebody had drunk, the wine was gone. And Christ even made more wine. A liberal. Pula Bethesda, John 5. What could you do on the Sabbath? The Mosaic Law said you can only heal on the Sabbath if life and death, and if that person was at death's door, you could only heal. Christ healed on the Sabbath. The man wasn't on death's door. He healed on the Sabbath. A liberal. John 8, woman caught in adultery. Mosaic law said she must be stoned. 
as the Pharisees were approaching Christ, he almost ignored them, writing in the ground. And they pursued him and said, like, come on. They were tempting him. And his response, whoever is sinless can cast the first stone. Broke the Mosaic law. A liberal. Friend of publicans and sinners. Samaritan woman. The parable of the good Samaritan. This liberal was smashing all of the racial and all of the cultural norms of the time. In one of Christ's first sermons, he quoted Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. We were asked to do this for the teen forum as well. And the teens and some of us who struggle with sin, those who haven't given their lives to God, are bound. Christ came to proclaim liberty to them and to us. Galatians doesn't stop there. Apostle Paul's first principle after calling us to liberty says what? The caveat. <coughs> Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Before anything else was talked about liberty or was written about liberty, the first is the caveat. An occasion not to the flesh. I want to let that sink in for a second. Short 19 years ago, San Francisco AIDS Foundation they present us what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is. Brother Mark found this ad. I remember standing in a foyer at church, and he was explaining it to me. And I thought in my head, that's disgusting. We see a flag. We see two men. We see what joins them as a condom. It's their life. It's their liberty. It's their pursuit of happiness. I shared this with my wife as we were driving in the car after I talked to Brother Mark and I explained it to her and she said, that's disgusting. You're not going to use that, are you? I said, we didn't make it up. Brother Mark didn't use Photoshop to say what he believes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is. He didn't think of a disgusting situation in life 
Because the reality is, even 20 years ago, and we can just assume what we're being bombarded with now. Because that's real life. That's not something we created for the forum because we think that that's effective, that's bold, that'll get you thinking. That's real life. A Chris is not free to do whatever he wants because we have that ticket. Because why? The Holy Spirit inside of us screams. It screams if we take that ticket and we want to indulge ourselves. The Greek de definition of occasion is a word, called, a word called a form, if I'm pronouncing it even correctly. The neat thing about that word is that word occasion really means it's a base of operations. If we think of the military, we have in North America a lot of different bases of operations. One of my favorites and my hobbies is, is the stealth bomber. In Missouri, every stealth bomber takes off from that base. A base of operations, occasion. But don't use your liberty as a base of operations to serve the flesh. One of the greatest dangers we have in using this word is giving us an opportunity to make a base of operations to serve ourselves. We're not called to new selfish ways of serving ourselves. We had discussed, well, what is this base of operations? And one that affects me being in the professional world, Brother Mark brought out a great illustration. Picture me at work. There's a nice young lady that is in my team. We work together. We're young. I'm a happily married man. But being a young guy, that being a young girl, I think it might be fun. I think it might be nice. It might be good team building. If I take that opportunity, whatever opportunities I have, maybe for a quick flirt, something real innocent. It doesn't mean anything. I'm a happily married man. I've given my life to Christ. It doesn't mean anything. But I take a quick opportunity to say a really nice word. Am I using that as a base of operations for something else? I think you'd all agree with me and say, you know what, that isn't sin, that's being nice. Am I using that as a base of operations for something else? Beautiful scripture in 2 Peter 2 that we use with the teens as well is that there are systems and there are encouragements from the world that, as the Bible says, they promise us liberty, but they being servants of corruption. See, because that, that's innocent. That's me just being nice. 
What's wrong with that? So we're encouraged that even though that might not be sin, that there's an opportunity for us to make a hedge, grind ourselves in as a base of operations for possibly later serving ourselves. beautiful picture of the last little while, let's say, of Christ's life. But by love, serve one another. As Brother Mark communed on this topic, him and I, I can find no other picture, no other perfect and I use that word purposely, no other perfect example of what we're told to do. You see, washing the feet was something that was for a servant. Let's put this in context. It's the Last Supper. Christ knows that his time is drawing to an end. He's with his followers of years. And as he's sitting there around the table, he hears the arguments of, I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to be the greatest. Just as he's ready to give his life and to pass on the gospel message to those his disciples, and they're worried about who's going to be the best. I don't know if it was his answer to that argument. I don't know what was going through Christ's mind. But it's clear that as that argument was happening, or at the end of it, his answer was to kneel down and to wash 12 pairs of disgustingly filthy feet. To me, it perfectly puts in perspective, but by love, serve one another. This word serve, if we again go back to the Greek, it's a word called dulio. And the word literally means bond slave. I was really confused when I read that because I thought, bond slave? It's actually being so much of a servant that you're almost considered a slave to your master. But by love, be a slave to one another. Is it a, is it a slave that is upset? It's always kicking the ground when they walk around. That's talking behind their master's back or even more talking behind their brothers and sisters back. Rhetorical, I know. Obviously not. By love serving one another is by love wanting to, seeking out, looking for opportunities to serve one another.
So what does this mean practically? To, by love, serve one another. It's great to talk about it. Theoretically and theologically, we all would say a very bold amen to it. But what does that mean to us practically in our fellowship? Within the church, there's a broad spectrum of people that make up the church. There are those that are spiritually weaker. There are those that are spiritually stronger. And every single speck along the spectrum in between. That makes up the body of Christ. That's the church. And that's just within our own fellowship. So by love to serve one another. Well, let's take one perspective on that. We can maybe take a look at someone that's spiritually stronger and they're always accommodating those that are spiritually weaker. Just to keep the peace. Fine, we won't do that. No, okay, fine, we can't bring a piano into the sanctuary. No, okay, we can't do that either. Okay, fine, you don't want us to do that. You, you can't take that. That's fine. And basically, they just give up on ever changing. And then let's take the other side of the equation. Someone that's spiritually weaker in a church that is always changing and is always accommodating the never-ending changes, even though they may not be good changes. They don't voice their thoughts. They just shrink into their shell and say, I give up. It's going to change. What's the point of even saying anything? In both of those cases, both are getting spiritually weaker because it's empty service. Apathy is happening. Indifference, immaturity, there's division going on, and it leads to bondage. The church as a body is not growing. They are not growing spiritually stronger. They are not doing more things for the kingdom of God. Both sides have capitulated to become spiritually weaker and have, in essence, come into bondage. Now, if we take the other side of the thing, the the, the equation, we all know the phrase, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So let's look now at the spiritually stronger again. Spiritually stronger person should understand that change can be painful for those that are not up to it. So they would be very considerate in their implementation. They would lovingly educate and educate and educate. And there was a sermon or a forum earlier on the week on that. And they would seek ways that they could serve the weaker. And then on the other side, we have those that are spiritually weaker. That if they are truly spiritually minded and have been called unto liberty and understand that, they will understand that change is necessary. For growth, they will seek to understand what these changes are about. They will go out of their way to, to ask some questions. They may even, if they truly understand their calling onto liberty, find ways that they could be participating in the implementation and see what they can do to encourage and support those that are spiritually stronger and by love serve them so that their spiritual growth, 
so that there's maturity of the body, so that there's unity, so that there's truly by love serving one another and there is liberty in Christ. And that's what liberty is all about. It's about spiritual maturity. It's about edifying and building up the body of Christ. And it's interesting because these statements that we've been talking about all have the word, two little words in it, one another. That means everybody's included. It's not the responsibility solely of the spiritually strong to always suit the weak. It's not the responsibility of the weak to always do this. Both sides of the equation, one another, every single one of us are called unto liberty and called to, by love, serve one another. So what does that, what does that mean? We've been talking about things from a, a corporate standpoint, as a church body or as a body of Christ. But what about when we get into the areas of personal liberties? What are the criteria that we would use on that? What does the Bible say? And what, depending on what criteria we come up with, what is that going to convey or communicate to the rest of us? For example, if you took the, the, the laws or rules, they communicate a certain thing. If, all I, if, if whenever something comes up, I just make a rule, it communicates something. But instead, let's take a look at an example of something we know quite well, Statue of Liberty. I don't know how many of you know a lot about the Statue of Liberty. I knew absolutely nothing being a Canadian prior to this topic. Um, but as I did study it, I was awestruck. I know Brother Glenn and I, as we were discussing it, it's just like, wow, that is so interesting. There's certain criteria, design criteria by the Frenchman who, who designed this and, and who built it over in France. He put together certain design criteria in putting this together. And each of those criteria were meant to convey something. For example, the statue's holding a, a tablet in their arm. That tablet or, or, or book is shaped in the shape of a keystone. And those who are in architecture knows that a keystone is what holds everything together, much like the chief cornerstone that we read of in the Bible. And on that, in Roman numerals, is July 4th, 1776, the day of independence, freedom, liberty. The outstretched arm with the torch the torch is, is a strongly symbol that, that Bartoli incorporated into the statue, he says. In fact, the statue's real name is not Lady Liberty or the Statue of Liberty. The actual name given by the French designer and creator is actually Liberty Enlightening the World. Think of what that conveys or what it should convey and communicate. The crown that's around the statue's head has seven spikes on it. Those seven spikes symbolize the seven seas and the seven continents. Again, reinforcing the universal concept of liberty and freedom. The Liberty, Statue of Liberty, very much like myself and many of us here, wear sandals. And the statue, unlike most other statues, is not standing straight like this. The Liber Lady Liberty is actually has a foot forward as if taking that liberty out into the world, much like 
we are commanded to with the armor of God and our shoes, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to take this liberty to the world. And one of the things that I had no idea was, it's at the base of this statue, because most of the time you can't see it because you're looking up. The base of the statue is a bunch of broken chains because liberty has been given and the shackles are off. So similarly to these design criteria that were put together for the the Statue of Liberty, the Bible is filled with some biblical spiritual criteria for us to follow. And they're contained in in Romans 14, 15, 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, and Ephesians 4. And we're going to now go through some of these um, design criteria and what they convey. And there are three simple principles that they convey. We are to care for one another. We are to edify one another. And we are to be fitly joined together. That's the principles, the main principles, if we could boil it all down, that are found in these scriptures. But most of the time, if you ask somebody what these scriptures say, they will not come up with these principles. They will say, oh, it says that the strong shouldn't do this, and the strong should be, you know, just bend to the weaker, and it says the strong should do this, and it says the the weak are this. The principles are what God is trying to teach us. And when we talk about liberties and personal liberties, these are the criteria and the principles that we want you to keep going back to and remembering. It's three simple things. Care for one another. Edify one another. And be fitly joined together. So let's look at what each one of these are. Caring for one another. And I'm sure some of you, when you're looking up there, says... What in the world does a judge's gavel and scales have anything to do with caring for one another? The reason why we put that picture there is to show the contrast in how we typically deal with things. When we start judging, or we start talking about liberties, we typically judge instead of caring for one another. And so when we take a look at the first few um, Chapters in Romans 14 and the first half of Romans 14 and the first half of, or first little bit of 1 Corinthians 12, they talk about the relationships between those that are spiritually stronger and those that are spiritually weaker. And if we look at Romans 14, those first 13 verses, here's some of the principles that God says in there. God has received both of them and is able to make them stand. Christ died, rose, and is Lord of both of them. Be fully persuaded in your own mind. We shall all individually stand before Christ and give account of ourselves to God. So what's his concluding points in this? He actually starts with it, actually. For those that are strong, don't judge the weak for not taking liberties. To the weak, don't despise the strong for taking liberties. And his conclusion is, therefore, statement, let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. That's caring for one another. Both sides, building up, both sides going towards spiritual maturity, like that slide that that we had earlier. And if we look to 1 Corinthians 12, here's some of the concepts that are taught in there. Every member is unique. Every member is absolutely necessary, even if we don't think so. And those that we think to be less honorable, those we ought to bestow more abundant honor on. It's the concept of one for all and all for one. 
we shouldn't look at who the person is and judge them, whether they're strong or weak, but we should look at how God is using them or how God could use them and the potential in a person. Again, what, is the, what are the principles that are being taught there? The verse says, God has set every member in the body, both the strong and the weak, as it hath pleased him. God said it there, not us. It's not for us to say, you're a little too spiritually weak for our church, or you're a little too spiritually strong for our church. God has set the members in the body, and therefore we should have the same care for one another, that there should be no schism in the body, but we should have the same care for one another. And we go back to our Galatians 5 text, which is the foundation of this forum, and in there it talks about, but if you bite and devour one another, beware, be careful that you're not consuming one another. So the key here is let's begin to communicate and reason together in love, showing the same care one for another. Our second principle is edifying one another, not putting a stumbling block, um, as the sign shows. And this principle is talking about how to resolve differences in personal liberties. And this just continues from Romans 14 and also into 1 Corinthians 8 in the second half of, of um, or second part of 1 Corinthians 10. And in here, we're going to find a lot of responsibilities if we really search through it. It's very easy when you're looking at these scriptures to get very stuck from one perspective. Oh, he's only talking to the spiritually strong and what their responsibilities are. But if you really look closely and examine verse by verse, you will find there's going to be responsibilities to the strong to the weak, and to both. And too often we kind of skip the second or the third and just focus on what the responsibilities are to the strong. But in order to have a healthy church that's united and strong, both sides have to be building towards spiritual maturity. Both sides have to be growing. Both sides have to be working towards unity and by love serving one another. So instructions to the strong, responsibilities to those that are strong. Romans 14, 13, and 1 Corinthians 8, 9. To the strong, don't put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. Walk charitably. Don't wound the conscience of the weak or encourage them to take on your liberty without knowledge. In other words, like Brother Louis' form, educate, educate, educate. Don't give the weak an occasion to speak evil of your liberties. And don't flaunt your liberties before the weak. Practice your personal liberties privately before God. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself unto God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And then we have some responsibilities to those that are spiritually weaker. That is, grow in knowledge and understanding of the word. There is nothing unclean of itself. All things indeed are pure. Study the word. Understand what the liberty is. Grow in discernment, Hebrews 5 says. Don't speak evil of others or their liberties, we find in 1 Corinthians 10, 29 and 30. And in Romans 14, 21 to 23, and also in Psalm 119, 165, grow in your faith so you don't stumble, aren't so easily offended, or made weaker in the, in the spirit. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall cause them to stumble. 
I love that verse. I've memorized that verse because I think it has such value within the church. In the day that we typically throw around the word, I'm so offended. Dig into the word, brother. You wouldn't be so easily offended. But not only is the instructions to the strong and to the weak, there's instructions to both. These are two-sided. Both the strong and the weak are responsible in these areas. To seek for each other's welfare and the profit of one another and to follow after. Both of them are supposed to follow after the things which make for peace. It's like the Middle East. We all know the conflict that's going on in there. Why? Because both sides are not building up together towards unity. One side may at one point in time, another side may do it at another point in time. Some may be doing it a little deceptively. Not everybody's working towards the same goal of liberty and serving one another in love. And that's what we're called to. We are called to that type of liberty. The third principle is being fitly joined together. Much like a puzzle. We each are a puzzle piece. And like in our teacher's meeting yesterday, one of the brothers said that he wanted to talk about his class, the, the difference in split the class into introverts and extroverts. Very similarly, within the body of Christ, if we are all puzzle pieces, some of you are innies and some of you are outies. But they're all important in order to put the puzzle together. You can't all, the whole puzzle cannot be made of a bunch, a bunch of outies. It can't be made of a bunch of innies. You need those that are innies and outies. And in some areas in our life, like a puzzle piece, you're going to be a little outie. And in other areas, you're going to be a little innie. That's good. That's okay. We need to be fitly framed and joined together. That's what the scripture says. And I love this scripture in Ephesians 4.16. The whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto edifying of itself in love. <gasps> There's a lot in that verse. It's more than a mouthful. And as Brother Glenn and I were, were looking at this verse and, and studying it a little more, we realized the richness that's in there and the truths that can be had when we start to pick it apart. For example, the, the Greek of fitly framed or, or fitly joined together basically means to, to render it close jointed, to, to be organized and, and framed together so that all the pieces fit together, just like in a puzzle. But it doesn't just go to being fitly joined together. As, a, as we would think of, of some pieces being joined together, it says that they're fitly joined together and compacted. It means driven together and forced together so that they cannot be broken. That's what it, the scripture is indicating. That's what Apostle Paul is telling us. Don't just kind of fit together with your brothers and sisters and in a way that you can have some semblance of peace going on, kind of. No, you're supposed to be fitly joined together and compacted and driven together by that which every part, every joint is supplying. And when we initially talked about that and studied that, we think, okay, joint. Yeah, you have a ball and you have a socket and, and they go together and they, they move together. That's not actually what the Apostle Paul is talking about. 
A joint is not a ball and socket articulating and rubbing against one another. So at some point in time, you get some arthritis and flaring up because there's too much rubbing going on between members within the body. That's not the joint that Apostle Paul talks about. The joint, actually, that he's referring to refers to the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments and the blood vessels that are all around that joint that enable it to do what it was designed to do. Not the joint itself, but every single part attaching to the other part and supplying the blood and supplying the nutrition and supplying everything that is needed in order for that joint to function properly and be edifying to the rest of the body. That gives a whole different picture to how we should, by love, serve one another. Each part is dependent upon one another. Each person is supposed to be deriving nourishment and nutrition from one another, the stronger and the weaker. And then let's move on to the next part of the verse. According to the effectual working and the measure of every part. The effectual working, energia, the efficient use of energy, something that's dynamic, something that's moving, not stagnant, not working towards apathy because we're held in a cast and we can't move. It's moving, it's active, it's dynamic. It's doing work. And it's doing it according to the measure, to the degree or the portion that every person is putting in. And that's why if some aren't putting in, you aren't moving forward. You aren't moving, you're stagnating. And that's why it's important for both the stronger and the weaker to be building up and to edify for the stronger to include the weaker in on things and for the weaker to be open enough to say, you know what, I can see some value in that. I'm going to also caution you maybe on that, but can I help out? Can I be included in this? How can I participate and by love serve one another? And then we have the maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Maketh increase. The Greek word simply means growth, making growth of the body and the edifying or the building up of one another. There's no collision. There's no jarring. There's no one part against the other. It's all working together for the edifying of the body of itself in love, referring back to by in love, serving one another. Which brings us to the last part of Galatians 5. A simple verse that he concludes this section with, after I've told you by love to serve one another and be careful that you're not biting and devouring one another and being consumed one of another, this I say then, walk in the spirit. When both the spiritually strong and the spiritually weak are walking in the spirit, they're both growing in spiritual maturity. They're both growing in unity. They're both growing in their love for one another. They're both growing in their service to one another. And there is liberty. There is true liberty in Christ. And you can look at this picture one of two ways. One is you're the perspective of the person on the right, and you're walking with the Spirit. Or you could take the perspective of, I ought to be walking Besides someone that's walking in the flesh, I ought to be walking in the spirit. And so we need to find ways, whether we're 
the one that's walking in the flesh or we're the one that's walking in the spirit, we both and all together need to find ways to work together, to be fitly joined together, to be edifying one another, to be caring for one another. And when we do, this will be a truly liberating experience for we are called unto liberty to serve one another in love. Thank you. Okay, we got some time for some questions. Not sure we'll be able to answer them, but we'll uh, we'll do our best, um, Brother Dan. Disagreement is not necessarily, disagreement is obviously not necessarily unhealthy. Um, and yes, in that way, and Glenn, please jump in uh, at any point in time. Um, in those areas where there are those disagreements, there's going to be times that the spiritually stronger are going to have to say, you know what, I agree, brother. You know what, for the sake of peace, I won't do that. And at other times, there's going to be times where the spiritually stronger is going to say, would you mind sitting down, let's, let's study the word together. And we may still end up walking away, having a disagreement. But however, we now, according to the scriptures, can say, you know what? I'm not going to take that liberty around them because of that. I guess there's a fear of sort of that maybe conversations or discussion or the attempt to understand the other person. You know, there's that the fear that, you know, we have to always agree and have to be always on the same page. And maybe somehow that prevents this these principles are being carried out, you know what I'm saying? Right, and to your point, excellent point. So he was saying that, that sometimes we always, we, we think sometimes that there always has to be agreement um, and coming together and we're all pulling in the same direction or, or that there can't be differences of, of opinions and thoughts. Is that kind of what you're pointing to? Because I want to repeat it for, for the tape's sake. Um, and, and how does that work? Um, Brother Glenn, I don't know how you, if you want to jump in. I believe when we... We know that there are disagreements, and when we don't come together and discuss them, I think that gives the inlay for the division. So even though we, we I don't want to use the cliche, but agree to disagree, when there's no communication at all, the body can't work together. I get the impression that the assumption is made that it is known who is the spiritual strong and who is the weak. Is that the case? No, I, I don't believe that there is an understanding of who is spiritually strong or spiritually weak. I think it's going to be, and here's, here's the, as we were discussing this topic, we had that same question. Well, you know, who's those that are spiritually strong? Who's those that are spiritually weak? And, and we posed the question um, almost rhetorically. Um, if we're broached with a subject or a topic, that might be a source of disagreement. We ought to ask ourselves, am I spiritually weak or spiritually strong? If I'm spiritually weak, 
and I will admit that, then the other brother should, by love, serve me. If I admit to myself that I'm the spiritual stronger one, then I'm the one that should be serving this brother. So too often, it's not our job, and that's one of the first principles under caring for one another. Don't judge those as, oh, they're just spiritually weaker. At the same time, the spiritually weaker, in your own mind, should not be despising the spiritually strong for taking liberties. They're simple principles that are found in Scripture. What happens is we too often decide who's the spiritually stronger, who's the spiritually weaker, and where they are. That's not our job. Our job is look at ourselves. How can I, and that's the underlying principle of that verse in in Galatians 5, and I hope that you walk away with that. It doesn't matter who you are and where you think you are. Your job, my job, Brother Glenn's job, is how can I love and serve this brother wherever he happens to be? in whatever liberty he happens to be taking himself in. And if it's a liberty that he is taking as an occasion to his flesh, then by love, I had to come alongside this brother and find a way how I can serve him so that he can have his eyes open to see that he is using his liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Supplementary, Brother Mark. Yeah. Talk initially about change. Church is compared to a flock of sheep that has leaders. Mm-hmm. And when it really comes down to it, the decisions need to be made by the leaders. It should not be left up to the flock to sort out what change should be made. Brother Eckert, I would choose and take the liberty to disagree with you slightly. And here's an example of slight disagreements. Um, and the reason, why, the reason why I say that is because we have some very good examples within our fellowship of extremes to that, where leaders rule with an iron fist, overruling instead of being, as the scripture says, the higher you want to go, the lower you go in service. Those who would be the chief, let him be your servant. Those who would be the greatest, let him be your slave, the Bible says. So there's, there's examples of that within our fellowship. I believe, and this is my own personal opinion, others can choose to disagree with it, and Brother Johnny, feel free to disagree or support me in this way. We are, well, I'm just, I'm just using you as an example of the elders. There's Brother Jim, there's Brother Mark, uh, Brother Mike I saw somewhere up there. Feel free to, to correct me in that sense. But as the over-shepherds of the flock, we are to work together as the body. The leaders are not a separate puzzle by themselves. You are puzzle pieces that fit into us, and we fit into you. Brother Johnny. Yes. Right. And that's where, again, there's the consideration. And, and you have the special um, responsibility um, to see what pieces are going to fit together in a way that's going to be edifying to one another. Brother Tom. <laughs> I agree to disagree. <laughs> what is the health of your body of believers? A body of believers that, that want elders to rule by edict? Or a body of believers that are all working together towards being discerning and monitoring one another in a, in a, a unified sense. I guarantee you, every elder here will say, 
We don't want to sit here really by a lot of patients say that, but <laughs> most of them would love to have a really healthy, strongly knit body of believers that are discerning on their own and, and working to monitor themselves so we don't have to run to them and say, make a decision, what's right, what's wrong. But I think the body has a head, which is Christ. Absolutely. The, the head is, of the body is Christ. Absolutely. He's the one that's putting the puzzle pieces together, um, in a sense. Brother Phil. Uh, can you just comment on the, the, the verse in uh, James? It appears to be a dichotomy. Uh, James two chapter, uh, James chapter two verse twelve. Uh, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. If you could just comment on that a little bit. <laughs> so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Actually, I believe if we continue into the book of James, or that's chapter 2, I believe if we actually step back into James chapter 1, it actually talks about how each of us are supposed to be looking into the perfect law of liberty for ourselves to ensure that we are following and being mirrored exactly according to what we read, not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. And when we do that, I think then that verse comes into a little better perspective of how we are supposed to be doing. And, and, and that's where, again, some of the disagreements, disagreements on, I think Brother Doug talked about it last night, some of the gray areas um, are where, again, our leaders provide a lot of the wisdom for it. But when we're talking about the specifics of the word of God, now that's where the law of liberty is going to tell us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, how we should be. I, th- I think of Apostle Paul where he said, you know, are all these things not lawful for me uh, to, to lead about a wife? Or, or Peter, you know, this is not lawful for me to do, uh, but I won't be brought under the power of any. And he also talks about uh, using all every old not expedient. Yeah. All things are not convenient. Right. It's, a, it's the, the same that, kind of concept. That is the law of liberty, the guiding principle of this liberty. Is not to use it as an occasion of the flesh. That's what all, that, that's, that principle, and that's, Apostle Paul does a great summary of all that. All of those things fit into that. Are you using it as an occasion to yourself to be self-serving and self-indulgent? Or, as true liberty is supposed to be, an opportunity, an occasion, a base of operations for me to serve my brother and to springboard to other ways to serve my brother and to serve one another in love. Brother Robert. I'd like to comment on the beginning of the uh, forum. I think that Christ was perceived as many things, even as one that perverted the and he was perceived by many yes. as probably as But at the same time, I don't think that him turning the water into wine would make him a liberal. No, 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 no. And that's, that's why we didn't, and hopefully we didn't convey that. We weren't saying that Christ was a liberal. Um, although, again, depending on your perspective, you may or may not disagree with that. And that would be, again, another area for a disagreement. Um, in the sense of some people would say, yeah, Christ was pretty radical. He was a liberal. Others would say, well, no, he wasn't. He was doing things according to the spirit and according to the, the, the letter, you know, not according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of the law, those types of things. But, yeah, we weren't trying to convey Christ as liberal, but ask, I mean, look at scriptures. Um, everywhere, aside from the 12 disciples, um, they viewed him as a liberal, as a, a gluttonous and a wine bearer, a friend of sinners and publicans, right? So, that's how he was perceived by majority of the people that were there at that time. Brother Vince. Just to build on that, two points is often we read the text of the Bible without really getting our mind into the culture. So commenting on Christ seeming to be liberal, he broke not only traditional customs, 
I took the liberty of shaving my goatee as a, to show the extreme of how far it goes um, where we would do that in, in our little introduction. Um, so in case anybody's wondering, <laughs> further do go. I think it's, it's important to keep in mind when you think about unity, not to equate that with uniformity. Of that. Yes. yes, and actually going back to the eating meat, I remember the other thing Glenn and I had talked about um, as we were going through the topic is, you know, it says in one of the scriptures, wow, Apostle Paul says, if, if meat make my brother to offend, then I will eat. Meat, no meat, to you know, for the, till I die, type of thing. And I, after, as we were studying that scripture, I asked Brother Gunn. I said, "Do you know was Apostle Paul a vegetarian? Because if he wasn't, then a he never came into contact with anybody that ever had that issue, which he wrote about it in three separate chapters. Or b he spent so much time loving them and serving them." that they spiritually grew in their maturity to understand that meat was nothing. Meat that was offered to idols was nothing. And I can take that liberty myself. So let's, as we go to, to lunch or to choir, let's think about some of these principles and, and think about Apostle Paul and, and his example as well. Thank you. <laughs> 